IBN is proud to bring you the following podcast. Welcome to Deconstructed. I'm TJ O'Hara, the Principal Political Analyst for IBN, the Independent Voter News. Our goal on Deconstructed is to break down important political issues with outstanding guests so you can develop your own more informed opinion. My guest today is John Daniel Hall IV, founder and partner of the Washington, D.C. law firm Hall McGuire PC. Before pursuing his legal career, Mr. Hall served as a legislative assistant to a congressional representative in the areas of energy and the environment during the 95th and 96th Congresses. He now is a member of the bars of the District of Columbia, Maryland, California, and Pennsylvania, and is admitted to practice before a variety of federal trial and appellate courts, as well as the Supreme Court of the United States. Mr. Hall has a distinguished background in international law, federal civil practice, complex business litigation, environmental law, regulatory matters, and legislative affairs, and has been recognized with a peer-reviewed AV preeminent rating that signifies the highest level of professional excellence. He has also served on a public land use and planning board, is the author of an award-winning blog entitled What About Paris, and has lectured around the world. Mr. Hall joins me today to discuss his own political journey and an unvarnished account of what he has personally experienced and observed in our nation's capital. Welcome to Deconstructed, Dan. Thanks for having me, TJ. Honor. First of all, I've dispensed with the historic formalities associated with the name John Daniel Hall IV because you and I have known each other for years and went to law school together. In that regard, I think I can reasonably assure everyone that the PC after your law firm's name stands for professional corporation as opposed to politically correct. Would that be a fair statement, Dan? That is fair. (laughs) Okay, you grew up in a relatively conservative area in Cincinnati, worked for a Republican congressman, yet were drawn to the Democratic Party. What attracted you to the party and how active were you within it? I'm a baby boomer, as you are, and I think that a lot of people about that vintage, growing them up in the 60s, no matter what neighborhood they grew up in, I also grew up in neighborhoods in Detroit and Chicago before moving to Cincinnati that were, I think you call them relatively conservative, but they would be characterized by big places where everybody went to college. When you are 18, 19, 20 years old, you tend to be a little bit more liberal. And some people associate that with rebellion from parents. But in my case, I think a lot of the ideas that I had seemed to be shared by other people I know who were in the Democratic Party, were interested in Democratic politics. In my family, we were not growing up terribly ideological. One of my parents voted for Kennedy, one for Nixon. So it wasn't that big a deal which party you were involved in. However, it is fair to say that most of the people I knew growing up in Indian Hill, Ohio, were not Democrats, at least past the age of 30. And how did you participate with the party? I think the first thing I ever did was, I don't remember coming out and saying, hey, I'm a Democrat, but I liked some of the candidates they had locally. And Cincinnati had a really interesting guy that most people know about, but might not know, was a very fine corporate and civil rights lawyer named Jerry Springer. Jerry Springer ran for council and won, and also as mayor of Cincinnati. He was originally from, I think he was born in England, went to school, Northwestern Law School in Chicago, may have been born in Brooklyn. He was kind of a carpetbagger, came to Cincinnati, and was Cincinnati's version of Bobby Kennedy, which is really kind of remarkable at the time because there was a guy who was espousing kind of social democrat ideas nothing too extreme but not the kind of thing you normally associate with the german catholic culture of cincinnati ohio and he attracted a lot of attention and uh, you know i probably rang doorbells for him remember he came to my high school 
There was also a time for a little while that I worked for Senator Metzenbaum or helped him when he was running. But I didn't consider myself to be a heavy Democrat. It was more along the lines of some of the people that I, that I admired growing up that were heroes, as they are to a lot of baby boomers, maybe John Kennedy, Robert Kennedy, a number of other people that were always in the forefront tended to have sort of social Democrat ideas. So it's a little bit part of a good person, being a younger person, being a cool person, whatever it was. But it led me in a direction of some interesting job opportunities and some interesting people. Speaking of interesting, I've seen pictures of you with Bill Clinton, and I know you were a fan of Hillary Clinton's during her presidential runs. Did you work with their campaigns in any capacity? I'd never worked on Bill Clinton's campaign, although I, I know one of the Clintons pretty well, and I'm not like a, an insider with that, that particular group. But I, you know, I like them both. I think they're both talented. I raised some money for Hillary Clinton and also was very excited when she was the candidate the first time. Uh, which Obama kind of took away from her. But I think of her as a manager, or I still do in many ways. But uh, I was not happy with the campaign in 2016 as it came off. And I thought that even while Trump wasn't maybe the ideal candidate, I thought he was treated poorly coming in and right after he was elected. And the reason I'm kind of working that into my answer is that the people who treated him poorly were a lot of the people that I had admired growing up that sort of made me think I was a Democrat or something like that. The press, certain intellectuals and public intellectuals on television and radio, certain writers, certain professors in our universities. I didn't really understand why Trump, for all his rough edges, couldn't be given a chance to see if he could be president. And I thought, this is a remarkable opportunity for us to have somebody who's not in the regular system, who is kind of plain spoken and I saw all sorts of good things about Trump, even though I didn't vote for him the first time that I think people missed. And I was actually ashamed of the way he was treated. He was still our president, and I think we owed him more than the reception he got. And that, that's sort of a, a fast forward to how I got turned off if I did the Democratic Party. I was talking to somebody else about this not that long ago. Carl Bernstein was always sort of part of the baby boomer soundtrack, if you will. And somebody I admire, and I still do as a writer, he's talented. He's been in and around Washington a long time. We, have, we know some people in common. It was hard for me to watch Carl Bernstein, who spent a lot of his career in New York, suddenly saying with everybody else who they could get to say it, that Trump was a racist and a misogynist in June of 2015, when Trump had been in public life in New York for his whole life. And suddenly he runs for president and he's a racist. And nobody was saying that before. Let's just say, let's put it that way. So I was disappointed in what I was seeing from people and the kind of things we were saying. And I thought it was childish. But another part of it, aside from the way that Trump was treated, for me, was watching how speech was an issue. Speech and expression was abandoned by the left. And it's true, I've never been very politically correct, but a lot of people with liberal credentials have been, uh, Rahm Emanuel is a good example, have kind of... Uh, salty or uh, off-course conversations and do things that other people find kind of offensive or different. But I haven't met any Democrat who can explain to me why the Democratic Party or the left in general seems to have abandoned speech. I think everything begins with speech, and it's probably more important to me than uh, expression, humor, satire, parody, literature, more important to me than anything that, like an ideology or a party. So that was another reason. So treating Trump poorly and 
abandoning speech was about all I needed to make a transition. Although I really don't think my ideas are that much different. I don't think I'm that much different. And a lot of people who've known me for a long time have said, I knew it, I knew it all along. But I <laughs> uh, hope that answers your question. That certainly does. You know, one of the things that transpired back in 2016, at least seemingly from my perspective, is the Democrats identified Trump as an easy target to grease the skids, if you would, for Hillary's transition into the presidency. What did they miss, if that's accurate? What was it about Trump that allowed him to surprise the Democratic Party? Well, I think one thing that Trump showed himself to be really quickly was maybe if he was not a professional politician, there still are about the fact that he really didn't, quote, know what he was doing because he was new to politics. That may be true, but I have never seen anybody in my lifetime with better political instincts than Donald Trump. Almost eerie. Um, maybe Bill Clinton is close, but I, I think he was a natural. I think he had good instincts, and I think not always listening to people helped him. The, the thing that they missed about Trump was that Trump was saying things even though the left and some of the media called it racist or misogynistic, saying things that a lot of people were thinking and had not been able to say for years. And I've talked about that on uh, other programs and to most of my friends for the last four or five years. I don't think that the Democrats knew who Americans were anymore. And if you want proof of that or how important they are and how many are, there are of people who think maybe more like Donald Trump than, than they thought, by her not going to the Midwest, the South, certain parts of the country to court those voters, big mistake, and it got Trump elected. Trump was really kind of a catalyst. I don't think he caused people to think differently. I don't think he caused people to change their ideas, but he seemed to be something that everybody else was kind of thinking along the lines that he was talking about. And it's not a matter of racism, it's just a matter of like, hey, what about this? You know, why, why isn't it more important for us to be talking about our economy and how to shore it up than letting anyone into the country that wants to come in without vetting them in the correct way? And a lot of people were thinking that, but they were afraid to say it. And one thing I must say is that as much as I'm happy that people are talking and it's a little crazy out there, but people are, you know, sort of acting out certain kinds of things that have been on their mind, apparently. I've been really disappointed by the mom and pop Republican middle class, even though they've been polite and nice and patient about certain things. There's just too many people and well-educated people out there who have been afraid to say what they want to say, uh, the kind of things they want to say in the workplace who used to be able. You can talk about views in the workplace now, but it's very obvious to me that you only talk about certain views. And if you don't have those views, you know, you just shut up. So Trump probably emboldened a few people, but I would like to have seen a little bit more courage from those people all along. And I still do. I blame the right a lot for what's happened in this country. Dan, we're going to take a quick break and talk more about your experiences when we come back. The National Association of Nonpartisan Reformers is the only association of nonpartisan election reform leaders, organizations, and industry professionals dedicated to increasing electoral competition and voter choice. Learn more at nonpartisanreformers.org. Welcome back. My guest today is John Daniel Hall IV, partner in the Washington, D.C. law firm of Hall McGuire PC and a politically active member of the electorate. Dan, let's talk about January 6th. You actually observed the rally that began that day, didn't you? 
You know, I did. On January 6th, which is a Wednesday, I knew that there would be, once again, a number of people in town from, really from, you know, Midwest, South, places. People that you see in Washington that you don't always see during the week, unless they're tourists. And I'd been to, uh, during that year, there had been four, this is the fourth rally of its kind and probably the biggest one. And I went down there and clicked pictures. I did, I did the same thing in July, November, and December. And I would ask people, you know, I, I worked as a journalist off and on while I was in law school. And I used to be a writer for a student newspaper. I would ask them where they were from and things like that. And I took a lot of pictures and spent a lot of time out on the ellipse on that day. And I, I must say that it didn't seem to me to be a very scary group. I mean, you saw the, the normal kind, there were, you know, that kind of demonstration, stop the steal. While there were a lot of people who may have thought that uh, the election was stolen, my impression was that this was a kind of a big, fun, exuberant last party for Trump. I didn't see people who were angry. I saw videos later of people quite angry down at the Capitol. They were fairly charged up. But what I saw was people from all over America, all different social classes of America. It was very interesting to me that during that summer, which is also the summer of Antifa and Black Lives Matter in Washington and other cities, these people have been coming for these marches and rallies, usually on the weekends. And they changed. I went to all four of them. I think they changed. They seemed to change to me in the sense that they were more Southern, Midwestern, and middle class in the beginning. And by the time you got to December and January, January, March, you had people from New Canaan, Connecticut, Gross Point, Michigan, from little towns in Alabama. And yes, there were a few people in tactical gear, a little kind of scary. And there was lots of nuts, but there's always lots of nuts in Washington. And people selling things and merchandise, but there, there was nothing very white nationalist or misogynistic or very scary about any of the people that I saw. There were a lot of families there. So it seemed to be, you know, it, it always struck me during the summer that the press kept talking about the kinds of people who were in Washington, whether it was at night during the rallies that sometimes Antifa and BLM would put on or during the day. And I was a little offended by the fact that the press couldn't be a little bit more forthcoming and candid about who was really there. Uh, not right at the rallies or at any point of impact where people were fighting, but the rank and file of the groups that I was seeing, I was nothing like I was seeing on television later that night, not even close. And it was almost as if anyone who's in Washington as part of any of those demonstrations, whether they were politically charged up or, or not, was some kind of enemy of the state because they were a, a precursor of white nationalists or Nazism. I thought that was wrong. And it's one of the reasons I was so interested in finding out where people were from. I also noticed that I live closer to Capitol Hill than I do to the White House, I guess. But I work not too far from the White House. And one of the things I would see at night, and this is very easy to see because anywhere I would go, people would walk in Washington in the morning at night, I, I'd see what was going on. And you know, Antifa, there's a lot of Antifa people here. Not everybody knows who they are, but they tend to be young, sexually somewhat ambiguous, very serious. They and their BLM allies were really given a pass, not so much the press, but just the city of Washington. There's always been a lot of talk about one of the groups of Proud Boys having somebody who burned a sign near one of the black churches in Washington. And he did do that, but Antifa lit on a whole wall of St. John's Church during the summer, and very little, there was very little press on it. There was very little press in December when an Antifa member, rank and file member, stabbed 
four people who are a member of I think the Proud Boys uh, down near the hearings to have stabbed four people. And the, the press reported, Washington Post reported that there was uh, stabbings, but it didn't say who was stabbed by whom. And it almost made it look like it was the fault of the Proud Boys because they engender violence and that kind of thing. What I saw in Washington this summer was a fair amount of violence and rhetoric. A lot of things were set on fire from time to time. Things were broken, but very little coverage of that by the National Press Corps. They did cover things that were bigger, you know, like in Seattle and in Portland. But Washington had a lot of its own problems that were given short shrift by both the city and to a certain extent the national press. And I think that was very clear to me that that was a pattern by the time January 6th rolled around. Dan, did you have the opportunity to listen to any of the speeches or were you just more focused on the journalistic element of interviewing people? Well, I wasn't even doing journalism. I just like, I like people and I, and I like seeing, you know, it's, I like hearing that somebody's from Troy, Ohio. I think it's fun or from, if you live in Washington and you're not traveling a lot as we didn't as much during COVID, it's like, you know, meet somebody from Sioux City, Iowa. And I've been fortunate to travel and been encouraged to travel in the United States and outside of it my life. It was just kind of, you know, fun and refreshing. So I like the fact that Washington had this sort of different kind of atmosphere. But I don't think there was anything about January 6th that was particularly different in terms of like who was in Washington. I mean, it wasn't, it just wasn't the kind of thing the press said it was. How would you describe the tenor of the content that was delivered in the speeches? The speeches, which you had asked about, I only heard a couple of them but it was primarily like everybody else kind of mingling and looking at people who are around the ellipse right behind the south of the White House. There's a much bigger expanse that goes on to the mall where a lot of people were. So it wasn't as if everyone was listening. There was music. There was other things going on, people selling things. There were some speeches. The only speech that I know for a fact that people actually listened to was Trump's, and that started around noon. It was supposed to be earlier. And I didn't see anyone affected by anything that was being said. I heard later that people did leave when Trump said leave and go down to the Capitol. But I didn't see a big nexus between what was being said over by the White House and anything that happened at the Capitol. It was a huge group of people. People were coming and going. It was like people came for different things. Yeah. Dan, we're going to take a quick break and talk more about your observations when we come back. Looking for an insider's perspective? Join IVN's principal political analyst, Dr. T.J. O'Hara, as he deconstructs America's most pressing issues with notable guests from across the political spectrum. Subscribe to Deconstructed for fresh perspectives and no partisan spin. Welcome back. My guest today is John Daniel Hall IV, founder and partner of the D.C. law firm of Hall McGuire PC and a politically active individual who has straddled both sides of the aisle. Dan, let's talk about the First Amendment. You alluded to it in the first segment. Where do you think we stand relative to free speech in this country? I think from the standpoint of legal free speech in the First Amendment, free speech that speech is free from government you know, interference and control, I'm, I'm not particularly concerned. Um, people talk a lot about freedom of speech and meaning, sometimes meaning the First Amendment. First Amendment speech, I think, is doing okay, if you will. And I think that if people, you know, for instance, a friend of mine took a case to the Supreme Court for a band called The Slants that was a rock band, and they wanted to keep the name The Slants, even though it was offensive to people. And they won, and the case was 
misinterpreted by certain people, including people in the press, to say that the reason they won the right to call themselves the slants was that they were Asian and it was like, you know, a cultural appropriation or something like that. But the truth is we tolerate hate speech in the United States. This case is about three or four years ago, as we should. We tolerate lots of different kinds of speech. Very little in the way of speech will be shut down unless it's about very clear under the circumstances and the context it's going to hurt somebody. So we're, we're pretty, uh, we do things and hopefully we'll continue to do things with having the right to hate speech in quotations, if you will, that they don't do in Europe anymore. I mean, in Europe and England, I like England. I've spent a fair amount of time in England and Germany. I'm afraid that finally my mouth will get the better of me the next time I'm there. You can actually be jailed for saying certain kinds of things or being members of a certain group. We don't have that here. So I think that's pretty good. What we do have is a very big problem with most people who are politically active, and a lot of them seem to come out of the COVID period as being newly woke or newly unwoke people, whatever you want to call them, seem to be not very well versed in the civics of the First Amendment or a lot of American history. And they just think free speech, First Amendment, that just means I can say anything I want anywhere. And that's not true. I mean, the Capitol that day on the 6th was not, I like the Capitol. It was married near there. I worked there twice. I lived in my early youth, a few blocks from the East Lawn. This is not a place where every day of the week, a lot of times, you can say anything you want just because it's the Capitol. And that day in particular, because of what happened during the summer and a lot of the barriers are put up, usually are not barriers and perimeter fences around the Capitol. I was there a couple of weeks ago and walked right in front of a few feet from where any, any of this stuff could have happened. You can get close to it. But at the time, because of the summer's events, because of the problems with uh, perceived problems in security, you had a closed off area uh, and you had a day, a constitutional day, if you will, where we were doing something that may be ministerial, may be a ceremonial, but the certification of the votes of Mr. Biden and Ms. Harris is an important thing and we've done it before and it's something we need to do before we can go on. It is considered part of the peaceful transfer of power. I've heard too many people say they have a First Amendment right to walk up, you have a First Amendment right to walk up to the Capitol, to the perimeter, wherever the perimeter is that day and yell at it. You can yell at it, you can yell at anybody in America. It's one of the good things we have in most places. But that day, yelling at it doesn't mean you know crossing a barrier hitting a cop, breaking anything. That's not First Amendment at all. And there are still guys in pretrial detention, not everyone in pretrial detention, who think that they're exercising their First Amendment rights. They weren't. They were trespassing. And on that day, that particular day, when the peaceful transfer of power, which we are very proud of in the United States, is being negotiated through one of these ceremonies, this is not a really good time to go onto the Capitol grounds and into the building near the Senate chambers. And if you think it's just trespassing, you really ought to take a few courses in American history and find out what we've been doing for the last 200 years. Because even if you're pretty conservative, which I've become more, more conservative, I think, in terms of my views and what I'm associated with, the event was offensive to most anyone with a high school civics education. I mean, it was not, it was just not done well. However, I do understand why people would go up to the Capitol and what, what, it was a little bit like when I was in law school in Cincinnati, I used to play basketball with one of our property professors. And sometimes a fire truck would go by 
And uh, Ted Hagelin and I would uh, get in our car, we stopped the game, we'd actually follow the fire truck and find out where it was going. Maybe that's just me and Ted, but I, you know, I think people are curious, I think this herd mentality. And I think that, you know, if you do cross that line because you can't resist your herd mentality and you go up to the Capitol, I think I understand it and people will forgive you for that, but it was not an exercise of free speech or an expression under the First Amendment. And that's where people still don't get. I think there's a third part of this, though, to me, besides, you know, we still have good case law and a good regime for First Amendment, legal speech, uh, stuff that state can't stop. We still make a distinction between trespass or violent protests and free speech. Like I was just trying to point out there with the Capitol, that's nothing free speechy about it. But I think there's something that is going on that has nothing to do with the state. And that is there is sort of a self-censoring now. Culturally, we have become sort of censorious, if you will. I think that's the word. And I'm not sure which comes first, you know, in terms of regulates culture politics. People always talk about that. But our culture right now is very stifling in terms of what you can say. In terms of our basic First Amendment law, that's okay. But our culture is, I'm talking about situations where there is no state actor involved or we're in private situations or in the workplace or we're in our front yards or with our families or we're at a school event. There does seem to be a great deal you cannot say. And I think that's bad for people. I think it's probably going to make you ill <laughs> if you're not able to, you're always not able to say what's on your mind, even if it's a bad thing, a bad word, a bad joke. And I, that's a big, that's a huge problem. That is the Dave Chappelle kind of free expression problem that I think is very distinct from, you know, our legal apparatus. But if people in the United States need to, I think, need to get a sense of humor about speech, even, quote, uh, racially stereotypical speech, and maybe consider using it a little bit, maybe it'll lose its sting, because we've become to the point where everybody is tiptoeing around everyone else. And I, I don't think that's a good thing. And I think eventually it, it, people act that kind of stuff out. But, you know, our problem is our culture, not so much our politics or political system in terms of regulated speech. And we have a problem with education. I think it's obvious from what happened on January 6th. People don't read anything. They don't know anything. They make stuff out. I don't know where they get this stuff. Dan, in the limited amount of time we have left, where can our listeners go to learn more about you and your blog, What About Paris? I would just go to what, so what About Paris is the blog, blog's name. It um, Its original name was What About Clients. And if you're just to Google What About Clients, that's URL. You can find me. I'm pretty easy to find. And somebody has an idea about writing or about a legal idea that's fine. If you are the general counsel to a large public corporation, you can get in touch with me any way you want, and I'm around. But uh, if you want to just get in touch with me, the blog is fine. And, you know, we can talk about solving problems as opposed to ideologies in America. John Daniel Hull IV. Where can I get a number after my name like you have instead of below my picture like in the post office? Hey, my friend, it's been fun having you on the show, and informative as well. You've certainly been closer to the action than most of us, and your perspective has been quite interesting. We'll have to do this again, like a class reunion. In all seriousness, thanks for sharing your thoughts, Dan, and thank you again for joining me on Deconstructed. I'd love to do this again. Hope you do. Great to see you, and thanks for putting up with me. This podcast is brought to you by IVN.us, an open news platform for independent-minded authors and readers. If you like what you hear, make sure to subscribe to IVN.us where you listen to podcasts.
on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, Acast, or iHeartRadio.